Brothers and sisters, I'm continuing a sermon series in 1 Timothy. We're up to chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit who has spoken through the prophets may now enlighten our hearts and bring the light of your word to bear in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, are you ambitious in your ministry? Uh, the reason I'm standing here today is because just over 22 years ago, I was gripped by an ambition, an ambition that caused me to abandon my work in the solar research industry and instead choose vocational ministry. It was an ambition. It was a passion for preaching Christ, to see people saved from sin and from God's judgment. And I was convinced that that is what God is doing in the world. And I'm still convinced. I saw that vocational ministry was personally how I could be part of that. So I have an ambition for ministry. And I hope you do as well. The Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 3, speaks about ambition and passion and aspiration for ministry leadership. It's not for everyone, but it is for some. And it's a big ambition. Paul names it, in fact, as a trustworthy saying. Uh, and elsewhere in this letter, the, the, the trustworthy sayings are about really important things involving salvation from sin through Jesus and eternal life. And here there's also a trustworthy saying. And it's about aspiration for the noble task of overseeing God's people. But what exactly is Paul talking about? Because I want to tell you what I think Paul should have said. Because I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in the power of God's word to save people from sin, to bring forgiveness, to change lives. So if you ask me what this noble task is, I'd say it's proclaiming God's word so that people are saved from sin and judgment. So if it was me writing the Bible, this is what I'd write. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must know the Bible and understand how to exegete it and preach well and powerfully communicate the gospel of grace. And also, of course, have skills in leadership to reach as many people as possible with optimum effectiveness. But I didn't write the Bible, did I? And that's not what Paul says, is it? This noble task requires the overseer to, verse 2, be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach... Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, 
then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, this is not what I expect. But of course, whenever the Bible says something I don't expect, it's really time to sit up and listen, isn't it? It's an opportunity to, get, let, to let God's word written challenge my presuppositions and teach me something. So let me show you something I saw as I looked more closely. Literally, the phrase noble task in verse 1 is good work. So Paul says literally here, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. And the thing is, Paul mentions good works a lot in 1 Timothy, as well as in 2 Timothy and, and Titus. In 1 Timothy, good works are actions that are either morally good or fitting for God's creation, or really both. Good works are something to be done by various people. They are to be done by godly women in chapter 2, by women who care for their household and practice hospitality in chapter 5, for people being considered for eldership, chapter 5, for rich people in chapter 6, uh, bit further afield, 2 Timothy, good works are to be done by godly ministers. And throughout Titus, Paul constantly mentions good works as something that is for all Christians. But not, not to earn salvation, of course, that's not what we're talking about here, but in response to God's saving, justifying work in Jesus. So back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Paul's not saying here that being an overseer makes you special and different, noble. No, he's saying if you want to be an overseer, that's great and realise this is a passion for a good work. Like everybody else is to be doing good works. An overseer is a leader in good works. This is not denying the importance of preaching and teaching, of course. Teaching is mentioned in the passage. Of course, it's mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament but it's not Paul's focus here. The focus here is good works, morally good works, works that are fitting for living as a human being in God's creation. And of course, that really fits the situation in 1 Timothy. There were false teachers in Ephesus who denied the goodness of God's creation. The false teacher's ambition was just for words. They were passionate about the word. The false teachers aspired to endless arguments about words from the scriptures. They aspired to debate and discussion, empty talking, ultimately, as Paul says, deceit. But Paul insists that God's word comes to us as human beings in God's creation. And that's why he says here, ministry is grounded in, it is accompanied by, it is there in good works. It's what we aspire to. Okay, now I've used the word ministry, but Paul uses some specific terms for ministers here, doesn't it? Uh, you might be wondering who exactly Paul's talking about here. And there's debates about this. Uh, Paul mentions overseers in verses 1 to 7. Are they separate from elders? I, I don't think so, given other parts of the New Testament. I think Paul is talking about elders, uh, but his focus is here on the role of congregational oversight. 
Paul mentions deacons in verses 8 to 13. It seems to be another group of people who assisted and helped in some way. Uh, there's women mentioned in verse 11. They could be women deacons or deaconesses or wives of deacons, as the translation in the ESV has it. And as I've investigated this issue thoroughly, I've come to the firm conclusion that I'm about 70% convinced that it's talking about women deacons or deaconesses. But I don't think, actually, the who question is the reason God has given us this part of the Bible. That is, I don't think God is here giving us an exact blueprint for how we must always and forever organise our church orders. If it was, the scriptures would have been clearer on the roles. Yes, there should be structure and order. That should reflect biblical principles. But the point here is not about the details of the structures. The point is about the principles of character. And these principles apply to anyone in Christian leadership. In fact, they apply to all Christians, but they're especially important for those in leadership who are to be tested and qualified for a ministry role. And it's fundamentally about character. This is Paul's logic. If you're ambitious for the good work of ministry, you need to be a good person. Not, not a perfect person, not a sinless person, but a good person. So just imagine for a moment your, your present or, or possibly future ministry role. Let me ask you, what, what's your task? What's your job? Chances are you're thinking about the stuff that you're to do. Uh, teaching, speaking, caring, visiting, organising, whatever. Well, that's important. But the main thing about the job is that you need to be a certain kind of person. It's about being before it's about doing. And at the head of the list is above reproach, free from blame, having an exemplary character. Not perfect, but exemplary. And this has a public, it has a social element. It means being above reproach from people. But it's not just about fitting in with the shifting standards of society. It's about being in line with God's good creation. And this matters. Because the job is to take care of the church. You see verse 5. The job involves deliberate, caring, attention and responsibility. Not just running a good show but being a good person, leading a community of good people, seeing God's word make an impact in people's lives. And to do that, it really matters who you are. What does that mean in the specifics? Uh, Paul lists some really important characteristics here. And I encourage you to, to make some space in the next day or so to take these verses yourself, read them slowly, prayerfully, focus on each detail. And if you need to repent... Ask God to help you to do it, to make a plan. If it's serious, talk to a chaplain or someone that you need to talk to about things. Perhaps choose one area you need to grow in and ask God to help you. Now, right now, we don't have time to go into depth on every characteristic. Here are some highlights, though. Husband of one wife, verse 2, the very least, implies that if you're married, this is talking particularly the married men here, you need to be actively committed to your spouse. Negatively, running away from adultery, pornography. Positively, actively nurturing your marriage. Sober-minded and self-controlled in verse 2. It's about being disciplined in your life. Not just following your passions, your emotions, but planning 
exercising judgment in your life, relationships and time and everything. Respectable in verse 2. It's about being appropriate with people. It involves decency and proper respect in how you relate, what you say, how you come across, even what you wear. Hospitable in verse 2. That's a significant detail. And I've asked Jane Tua to come and help us uh, a little bit later to, to think further about hospitality. She'll do that in a moment, so stay tuned. Paul gives us a list of serious things a leader is to avoid. Overuse of alcohol. You can ask about, about your drinking habits. Fighting and arguing. That was the big problem with the false teachers. They fought about words. Is that a problem for you? Greed for money. That really matters. Gossip in verse 8. How you manage your household is important in verse 4. I think there's implications here for all sorts of households. I think there's implications for chapo and share houses as well as nuclear families and marriages. Now, when Paul uses the word manage, he's not saying you need to have an MBA. He's not saying you need to love spreadsheets. Now you manage a household by deliberately caring for people. And he's specifically talking here about fathers. That's, that's the issue that he's addressing directly. So you should ask, especially if you're a father, are you the sort of person the people in your household can trust? Are you a safe person at home? Do you keep your word and follow through so people know where they stand? Do you use your authority for others, not for yourself? That phrase, keeping children submissive, that, that's not at all about forcing children to submit. No, it's about order. That's what the word means. It's the opposite of chaos. And your job is to have an ordered home, which means a clear home, a safe home, a good, disciplined, ordered home, not a chaotic home. Because verse 5, that's the kind of character you need for church leadership as well. Verses 6 and 7, this is the kind of thing that can only be seen and developed over time, because that's the big point. Central to your task in ministry is not just what you do, but who you are. Now, of course, it's true. How you handle God's word matters. That's why we're here at college. And that's why here at college we, we teach you and test you on how you handle God's word. We give you numbers, in fact, to assess how well you know and handle God's word. But please make sure you don't fall into the trap of thinking that the numbers tell you the full story. Okay? So seven out of ten in your week eight Greek quiz... That's great. It means you're doing well at Greek. Good. But by itself, that number says nothing about your fitness for ministry, does it? That tells you about Greek. And the things that matter most aren't easily measured by numbers. They're seen in relationships over time. Because central to your task in ministry is not just what you do but who you are. And that's why ministry is not just a, a job. It's, it's actually a 24-7 life. Ministry is a 24-7 life. 
Of course, I know that when I say ministry is a 24-7 life, it can be taken completely the wrong way. You might think if I say that ministry is a 24-7 life, I'm saying you have to be doing ministry tasks and on call 24-7. But hear me, I'm actually saying the precise opposite. What I'm saying is ministry is not just a task, but a 24-7 life. And you need to dedicate that 24-7 life to things that are central to your character. So central to your job is resting, stopping regularly, sleeping well when you can, praying, reflecting, nurturing joy in family, nurturing friendships that keep you grounded and accountable. These things, they're not just optional extras on top of your ministry job. They are your ministry job. Because central to your task in ministry is not just what you do, but who you are. That's why having disciplined boundaries matter. Not rigid boundaries, but deliberate boundaries. Things like work hours. Now is the time and space for doing this work. Now is the time and space for stopping. These are the relationships I'm committed to. I'm not going to let small, urgent things distract me, except in emergencies. And by definition, emergencies don't happen all the time. And if they're happening all the time, that's an issue. And so if you do see a person in ministry, or perhaps think of yourself, if you see a person who's always busy and exhausted by their endless tasks all the time, not just sometimes but always, who never rests, who's always stressed out, who's liable to relate in a snappy way, who can't be committed to their family, who's isolated from friends and peers, who, isn't, who is always undisciplined in the use of time, who doesn't want to even change that, who isn't safe in their words, who breaks promises, who, who, who doesn't keep promises, not because they're malicious necessarily, but just because they're too busy to remember what they promised, or who can't control their use of social media or other addictions, who lets alcohol or email master them rather than the other way around. If you see that person, if it's you, if it's me, well, you can't just say, well, yes, they've got some issues to work on. Yes, they're important issues, but the ministry of the gospel is what matters, and that's what's flourishing under them. Let's not be too harsh, because at least they're doing their core job well. No, that's actually somebody who's not doing their core job well. Because central to your task in ministry is not just what you do, but who you are. And neglecting those things is neglecting the core of the job. And you've seen it, haven't you? I've seen it. I mean, we've seen it among the megachurches, but I've seen it amongst friends. And I've needed to call friends to account. And sometimes it's been too late to call friends to account. And I've got to keep working on it all the time. Do you think that sounds hard? Oh, well, it is, but it's worth it. And God is gracious in it all. Do you see verse 13? Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven sinners. We need to keep returning to God's grace for forgiveness and for goodness. And when ministers are good, 
ministry is good. It's good for you. It's good for others as you grow in wisdom and life, as you live a life from which you can share your faith with others sincerely and really and seeing God's people and seeing God bring people from judgment to salvation, from death to life, forgiven and saved. So, brothers and sisters, remember verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, that is, a good work. Keep being ambitious for this good work. Well, as I mentioned before, I've asked Jane to come and help us think further about this key issue in ministry in verse 2, hospitality. Thanks, Jane. Um, thanks, Lionel. Um, well, it's no surprise, is it, to hear a talk at a Christian women's conference on hospitality, but would we expect one at a men's conference? Um, the next issue of Magnolia, the magazine of more women, has hospitality articles in it, but do we expect hospitality in a male pastor's magazine? As Lionel has just made clear, Paul assumes overseers will be hospitable. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us, given what else we see in the New Testament. All Christians um, are to be hospitable. So, of course, ministry leaders are not exempt. And this further makes sense when we look at the Old Testament. God's people were to welcome the stranger and give to people in need. Why? Because God had saved the Israelites when they were in need. And part of living out their salvation was loving others by way of hospitality. Lionel has just told us that Paul is concerned for the character of ministry leaders. Whether an overseer or not, ministry leaders must be leaders in good works. And one good work is showing hospitality. Hospitality shows us whether we get that God has loved us by saving us, and so we're to love others. It is us showing Christ-like love to others. It is welcoming them as God has welcomed us. Now, hospitality may freak you out, and the problem with freaking out is that it can stop us from doing things. Um, you may feel limited because of the size of your home, um, you live at Chapo or your budget, um, but genuine hospitality is about God, not about you, not about me, and this is very freeing. It helps us not freak out. It doesn't matter about our cooking abilities, the size of our home or budget. It's about loving others with Christ-like love. Now, this focus helps us not show favoritism and it helps us be more chilled. It doesn't need to be in your home. It could be at a cafe, park, beach. But dynamics do change um, when you invite someone into your home. So please consider that if it's not your usual practice. Many Australians rarely have non-family members over to their homes or go to a non-family member's home. So it's a helpful way we can challenge the culture for good. And go simple. Just have people over for a cup of tea, a simple meal. Um, there's going to be times for something extraordinary, but make the norm ordinary as you're more likely to repeat it. And the ordinary can be very meaningful in someone's life. And people seeing a model of ordinary in your home means they're more able to repeat it in their own lives to show hospitality themselves. If they offer to bring something, accept. 
um, if they offer to help in your home, accept. This, of course, is going to depend on age and culture and circumstances, but help the person move from feeling like a guest in your home to feeling comfortable and welcome, to feel more like a friend. It's good to have traditions in your home, um, whether you're single or married. Your traditions surrounding hospitality will be different to mine, and that is good. But we all have the privilege of offering hospitality. Um, three things quickly to end with. One, trust God when he says hospitality is a good work. It can seem like an insignificant ministry. You know, it's often kind of hidden at home and we undervalue it but it's not an insignificant ministry. Good works are why we are saved. Two, pray before you show hospitality. All of life in one sense is showing hospitality as we welcome and love others. But I've been speaking here um, specifically of welcoming people into your home. Um, pray before that happens. And three, thank God. After people have left, think of something to thank God for. Hospitality is not always easy. It's loving others, and that, of course, can be costly and difficult. But thanking God afterwards can help us see things from his perspective and help prevent us grumbling, which Peter warns us against when we do show hospitality. Let us not underestimate the power of good that hospitality is and the ripple effect it can have in people's lives. I remember hospitality shown to me from years ago as likely you do also. It's had a, a profound effect on me for good. As we continue to show hospitality, we grow in a deeper affection or a deeper appreciation for the welcome God gave each one of us in Christ Jesus. And as we understand this love more, we are more able to love others. Thanks, David. <laughs>